going to read for you today. Today we're reading out of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Thelophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the, prom for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Please pray with me. Jesus, you say it is not for us to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That is hard. We like to know and be in the know. We thrive on planning. We love to prepare. Knowing, planning, and preparing all give us a sense of control. But we are not in control. You are. Instead, you tell us to wait for the promise, the Holy Spirit. Wait. We are not good at waiting. Waiting is hard. We're not a patient people. Next, you instruct us to be your witnesses in our neighborhoods, our networks, and the nations. I think it's no surprise we often fail to follow your instructions. We need a helper. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Help us. Help us to trust. Help us to wait. Help us to be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. That's a tough word, that Theophilus. It'll get you every time. Good job. Good job. Oh, that wasn't meant to be a discouragement. Good job. Great job, Kara. Excellent. If I was in front of people and reading that, I'd be messing it up too, so... Hey, here we are, Acts chapter 1. It's actually not where we're going to be. We're going to be in Psalm 47. Um, but we're starting in Acts chapter 1 for a very important reason, um, and that is it helps to get our minds around the historical event of the ascension. Um, the ascension is, is that moment where 40 days, it just, it, just, it just outlined all of the elements of the ascension. 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus has been, Jesus has been on the earth encouraging the saints and the disciples, Right? Um, and as he has done so, that time has come to an end. And the question in the heart of the disciples is, is it now? Is the suffering and the waiting going to end now? Is your kingdom coming to earth just like you asked us to pray it down? Is now the time? See, that's, I think, at the heart of all 
of our questioning, all in the midst of whatever suffering you may be going through, is now the time. How long, O Lord, will you restore the kingdom to the earth? And so I have a question as we get into this, this question that leads into ascension, really, is I think that's at the heart of us, but really, like, what are we doing when life is not turning out the way that we thought it was going to turn out? When life throws you a curveball, are you prepared to adjust in the moment? How is it that you adjust in the moment? Um, I'll, I'll give you my curveball, um, our curveball, is that right in the midst of, of not having enough staff and not having enough elders and sending out a church, we got word in, in uh, March that we were no longer going to be welcome here at Frost Elementary over the summer. And so it, I felt that like I was keenly aware of the panic in my heart in that moment. Like, okay, yeah, that's all we need is, is one extra thing on top of all the other things that we're already juggling and managing. And in that moment, that was an unexpected curveball for me and therefore for all of us. And all of the questions started to run in my mind. And so this is usually how I start to think about these things like, okay, Lord, you're in control, you're sovereign, but you've given me responsibility. So we're going to go over to Foster High School, and we're going to put all the feelers out to all the schools to help us go, and, and maybe we'll go over to Foster, um, and that'll be a place where you have us meet and reach new people. But will our people go out that way? What, will, what, will, what problems will that cause that I can't see, oh Lord? And so all of a sudden, the anxiety starts to build, and then, oh, that's not available. Oh, no. Okay, one, one door starts to close, and then another, and then another, and then another. And, and that school's not available, and Briscoe's not available, because they're all doing construction. And Oakland won't get back with me, and this place won't get back with me, and oh, my gosh, where are we going to go over the summer? And all of a sudden, that curveball starts to build into some real-time anxiety until Bowie uh, gets back with us. You know the Bowie uh, principal, his last name is Yelvington? And you start to realize, like, God is sovereign, if you don't know that word. Uh, Matt Yelvington was a partner of our church. It's his brother that's the principal over at Bowie. He's first-year principal over there. I tell you all those details for you to realize, like, that is the ascension in a nutshell. Is that we have a lot of chaos going on in our hearts on how we can manage. and We do want to be in control with all the things. And yet God reigns supreme in and sovereign over all of that to help us understand and remind us that though, yes, we have responsibility, he is ultimately in charge of all things. And so all those, all the lists of the what ifs in my heart um, came to an end. And as we move over to Bowie, I know there will be more anxiety this week, all the to-do lists of trying to figure all that out. And yet, at the same time, there's a deeper trust that, then, Lord, you are sovereign over all things. And so today, I want us to be reminded that when we talk about the ascension of Jesus, we are talking about the end of all of your what-ifs. That is what the ascension ultimately means. It is the end of all of the what-ifs. Well, what if I was supposed to be a hockey player, like the next Wayne Gretzky? Well, I don't have to think about that because I was born in Texas, Seriously, like that gives you, should give you great comfort over life that like, oh, well, why didn't I go and do this, that, and the other? Because God chose for you to be here and do these things. We'll unpack that as we go. But the ascension for us, as we open up Psalm 47, so I know he just told you to go to Acts 1, and that was good. 
And that's where we started, and that was the historical part of things. But let's also journey into the Old Testament, which is known as the Ascension Psalm and Psalm 47. Now, I'll say this. The Ascension is, is less known for us. It's less familiar th- uh, to us than the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is the event, again, that happened 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. He appeared to over 500 people during those 40 days. And it is that moment when Jesus rises off the earth into heaven. His physical body goes into a spiritual place. That will bend your mind. Right? And he reigns and he sits down at the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules. Um, We don't rehearse this part to ourselves as much. This part of the gospel. We, like, we usually go, you know, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and we leave out the ascension of Jesus. But I want to bring us back to the historical reality and the importance therein. Did you know that from like 140 AD, the ascension was an essential element of the things that the early church said to one another on a regular basis, like weekly? And it is, it is to my shame that it has been over five years Uh, since we have recited what we're about to recite together. And it's called the Apostles' Creed. And I want you to just be reminded of the beauty and the truth um, which we're going to read together. Could you recite this with me? We don't have to stand. It's not God's word, but it is a creed. It's the earliest creed attributed to the apostles to make sure that we knew what we were supposed to uh, believe and hang on to tightly um, as believers for millennia now. Let's read this together. Can we read this together? Okay, I'm gonna have to turn around because there's no screen back here. All right, here we go. This is what we believe as, as a people. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. Check it out. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the everlasting life, amen. And for all of us who are not accustomed to ancient language, there's a little asterisk there that Catholic just means universal. Don't get wigged out, all y'all. Catholic is just Christian. It's not the Roman Catholic, it's Catholic universal. But let's not get bogged down in that. Instead, to focus on what were the, like, the main elements that the apostles wanted us to remember. Death burial, resurrection, and ascension, because from there, he reigns and rules over all things. And that's what this ascension psalm is going to teach us today in Psalm 47. Let's read it together, and then we'll jump in. Verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, why should, we, why should we live in such a way? For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He's a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us 
the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. In other words, take pause and notice. That's what Selah means. Have you noticed? Are you pausing? We go on. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. I don't know what you feel after that. But we're going to end on how we maybe should respond to all of that. All right, so there's a few things. If it's the end of what ifs, the first thing that it's going to end for us is this great debate. The ascension ends this great debate. And you go, well, what debate? The debate over who is king. Who is king? There are three people that are vying to be king in your life. The first one you will go, oh, well, of course, yeah, he can't be king. His name is Satan, the devil. He has always wanted to be in charge ever since he was cast out of heaven. And so what does he do? He even did it to Jesus, right? He did it in the garden, but he also did it to Jesus. In Matthew 4, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, which is usually a Lenten text, I'll read for us here. 489, uh, the devil goes to Jesus, right, where he tempts him. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, we just read that all the kingdoms of the world are already under Jesus' feet. Satan knows that. He's still trying to get at him. Just like he knows things about you, and he's still trying to get, get at you. But look at what he says. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these, I don't know how he, how he sounds, but that's what I'm just thinking. All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Like, that's how I imagine it. But that's true. Like, he wants him, he wants Jesus, the king of the earth, the son of God, to worship him. And if he did that to Jesus, guarantee you, he's doing it to you. Guaranteed. He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 says. 2 Corinthians says, he is the God of this world. That doesn't mean he's God. It's lowercase g. He has some authority, but he always has to ask for permission. Always. That's what Job tells us. No matter what comes against you, he asks for permission. And for whatever sovereign reason, God hasn't put the end to the devil yet. He will, and that's our hope. But he hasn't done it yet. So we're in this in-between space where we do have to wait, where we are longing with things in our heart. Oh Lord, at this time, will you restore the fullness of your kingdom where the fullness of your authority isn't just known and seen and believed, but experienced in real time? And we get little snippets here and there through life. See, the devil wants to be king. The ascension ends that debate. The second person that wants to be king in your life, underneath the devil's influence, isn't your spouse. It's you. You want to be king, don't you? Yeah, how do we do this? All right, so my college roommate and I, we're, we're party buddies. Um, so we, we met before I knew Jesus, and we, we partied together, and then I came to know Jesus, and that was kind of a, a, a problem in, in the small apartment that we had, uh, because we used to party in that apartment, and all of a sudden, partying wasn't really welcomed in that apartment anymore. And so I remember um, like months after I became a believer and I had my Bible in my hand and I remember being in the kitchen 
And back in the day, you had like, like, a, like cabinets at the top of the kitchen, and you had this little, little window that you could peek through in the 80s. I don't know if they still have that in the apartments, but like, I wasn't in the college in the 80s, but they designed it in the 80s. And I was, I was peeking through this little window, and my roommate was in the living room, and I was in the kitchen. I had my Bible in my hand. I go, man, if you will just read the Bible, you will be convicted, and you will stop all of the sin. And he looked at me, and he goes, Lance, I don't want to be convicted and stop all of the sin. Isn't that what happens with all of us? Every time we sin, we just go, I don't want to be convicted. I don't want to follow Jesus. I want my own throne where I can sit on it happily and just live my merry way. He wanted to be king of his life, and every time we don't want to be convicted and stop of the sin that we're about to commit or have just commit, we sit on a throne that isn't ours with the responsibility that Jesus didn't give us. And we do throw through sins of Commission, these are the things that we knowingly do. We also do these things through the sin of omission. Or as James 4 rightly says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. We spend a lot of our times avoiding sin. I wonder how much this world might be changed and that kingdom that we're so longing for might come to earth if we would just quit avoiding responsibility that we have as Christians to seek justice amongst other things that we're called to seek. We also try to take the throne or retake the throne when we we not only just sin by commission or omission, but when we read the Bible and we go, it can't really say that. Like, newsflash, the Bible is full of offensive things. First offensive thing that you're going to notice in the Bible is this, you're sinful and you can't fix yourself. You cannot earn salvation on your own. That is offensive to the natural person. Because you've been trained your whole life, you can do whatever you want to do. Just put your mind to it. You actually can't fix your spiritual problem. That is absolutely offensive to the natural person because we think we can. Matter of fact, you tell me I can't, I'm going to definitely do it now. Tell me I can't do 100 push-ups. I mean, if you told me now to do 100 push-ups, I'd be like, you're insane. But in college, I'd be like, all right, let's go, come on. Get to 50 and quit. That's our rebellious nature. We want to retake the throne. And, and there are countless other subjects in the Bible that are absolutely offensive. Either we uh, misinterpret it or reinterpret it. In one way or the other, we read things like slavery in the Bible, and we go, well, why didn't they attack that? Like, why didn't they go after that? I can't, I can't agree with a document that just doesn't outrightly say this is heinous and wrong. It, it doesn't. It says, slaves, obey your masters. That's offensive in our world. It's also offensive that we would say, submit to one another right before it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. The seeming genocide of the book of Joshua, that's really hard for a lot of people to get past. Until you realize the people that were in the land of Israel were worshiping false gods by offering their babies to him and killing their babies. God will not stand for that. But if you don't understand that, all of a sudden you start to go, I can't believe in a God that still thinks homosexuality is a sin. And it is. And we can't look at the Bible and go, well, hang on a second. There's some hoops here. I got to jump through and some gymnastics. Let me, let me limber up here before I get to God's word. You see what's going on in here right now? 
this, this, the, the mouse is running as hard and as fast as he can, and we're going, okay, how have I reinterpreted God's word when it's been inconvenient to me? It's Chipotle Christianity. We go down the line and we go, I'll take this. I'll take some extra cheese and some extra sour cream. Enough of the veggies. No, thank you. We go down the line and we pick and choose what we want, but we are trying ultimately to subvert Jesus and his authority and his place on the throne of our lives. And we go, surely it doesn't mean that. Surely this is out of, an out-of-date document. Let me find someone on the internet who agrees with me. They have a YouTube channel. It's guaranteed. And you will find them to emphasize what you want them to emphasize. But my question is, who's going to reign supreme? Will we sit in judgment of God, or will we allow him to sit in judgment of us? Where it says, we shall exalt the name of the Lord. Why? For he, we should fear him. We should fear him. Third person that wants to be king in your life is Jesus. Let it be known, y'all. Verse two, the Lord, the most high. Verse three, he has subdued the people. He has subdued the nations. Verse seven, he is king of all the earth. In verse eight, he reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. Yes, Jesus is the king of all the earth. In Ephesians 1, it says this about his ascension and his exaltation, and it says this in verse 1 of Ephesians uh, 19 through 21. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? You want to know the kind of power he shows us? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and it didn't end there, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, a little bit above, no, no, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every, above every name that is named, not only in this age, y'all, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Not just some things, all things, death, disease, the devil, and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Psalm 95 says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The ascension ends the debate, and key for our understanding is right here in verse 5. It says this, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, all tell you, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and what is he doing there? He's reigning, and he's ruling, and he's also doing what Romans 8 says. He says he is interceding on our behalf. See, our great king, he's not disinterested in all the little things that you're absolutely freaked out about. He's ascended but he's absolutely interested. And he's praying for you, and he's pleading with the Father to allow you to be guided by that great counselor, the Holy Spirit, who has come and filled us, who has come and empowered us to obey. We'll talk all about that for the next however many weeks, starting next week. Jesus is God, so you don't have to be. That's good news, that's not offensive. It's offensive at first. I like to be God, but it's good news because you don't have the power to do it. He holds the whole, the whole world together, Colossians 1 says, so you don't have to. He wears the crown, so you don't have to. 
The throne of your life belongs to Jesus, and he wants his seat back. You can't have it. I remember leading a discipleship group of a bunch of men long ago, and I remember saying something exactly like that. Jesus wants his seat on the throne of your heart, and if you don't give it up to him willingly, he will kick that chair right from underneath you. And somebody was like, he would never do that to me. Oh, he loves you way more than you think. He absolutely would do that to you. That was the last day that he ever came. That saddens me. Because he wanted to be on his throne. Jesus will do anything necessary to make sure that he has his throne of our own hearts, much less the whole world. He went to a cross. That's how far he's willing to go. He went into a grave. That's how far he's willing to go. You get a thing like, okay, you guys saw me dead, but you're not going to put me in the grave. That's kind of dirty, and I don't want to go there. No, no. He went through the whole thing for you. See, our God and our King is exactly that. Not only does it end the great debate, this idea of the ascension, it also ends worry. You anxious? Tired? Worn out? I am some days. I just told you about my heart as we move locations and how upsetting that kind of is for me. Like eight years is a long time to be in the same place. We'll never have to leave this place, I started to think, until we get a facility one day. <clears throat> Much for your comfort. Doesn't much care about it, I guess. Psalm 47, verse 4, gives us some great hope. This is how it end, he ends our worry. He says this, Our God, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Well, how does that end my worry? It feels like that just ramped up my anxiety. If I'm not in control of my life, then who is? Well, God is. He, he chose our inheritance for us. So back to the things that offend us, uh, not just all the things that I listed, but also this doctrine of election. This will split a church faster than maybe uh, an argument over the carpet color, right? Like, this doctrine of election and predestination is usually where people go, I love it or I hate it. What's in here? We can't reinterpret. We can. It's not good for you. There must be some hope in this if God's giving us the words of life where he says, I have chose your inheritance. It's, it's what Paul echoed in Romans 9, 13, where he says, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. We just went through the book of Genesis. It's an echo of Jesus' words. He just said it in, in Acts 1. His disciples whom he chose. It's an echo of John 15, 16, where he says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and yet your fruit should last or abide. That can be a very offensive if this is true, though, it puts an end to worry. It puts an end to covenant. It puts an end to rebellion, right? If you are a warrior in the house, which I think all of us are, uh, if, if you're a warrior, ultimately you think that you're the author of your life, and then you have endless decisions to make with the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're the provider of your life. You're the captain of your ship, ultimately, and you're the creator of all things in your life. We know that it's best for us to defer when other people are more wise than us and have more experience than us. You know how I know? Because when you go 
the Cheesecake Factory, well, number one, that's an overwhelming menu. But if you don't go to the Cheesecake Factory and you go to a place that maybe you haven't been to before, like if you go down and you go to like Ruggles Black, right? You ever been there? Raise your hand if you've been there. Like, uh-huh, okay, a handle full of us. What you do is you try to go with people that have gone before you because that, that menu is just too, too good. Like, what do you pick? But if you go, you go, hey, server, what's the most popular dish here? What do you like the most? You defer your wisdom and knowledge and lack of experience to someone else who knows exactly how things should go for you. And that's exactly how it should be with us and the Lord. We defer to him. He, he does come to serve us, but we're not necessarily happy with the menu that he provides. But will we be? He's the one that has the words of life. It ends our worry, but it also ends our coveting. You see, if God has chosen our lot for us, and he's the king of the universe, the exalted Jesus who paid for us, secured us ultimately, and fills us with his spirit, like how is it that we should covet? That we should long for someone else's life. That we should desire for things to be different than us. This was tested with me yesterday. I went to a baseball party where it was on that little lake, that little oyster creek in Sugarland, And across the way was the, the pool owner of like Maddox Pools or something. And it's been this house. Like you could just look at it and be like, okay, I have got to practice contentment. I preached on that last week. But I would like their home. I would really, it looks fun. I like this home, as a matter of fact. I like this house. It's got a pool. It's on the lake here, right here in the middle of everything. And I just sat there, and I was like, you know what, Lord? I'm glad that you didn't give me this. I wouldn't get anything done. I would be, I would, this would not be good for me. And I, I just started to settle into contentment and not coveting. Remember long ago, I had a phone call from a friend of mine from high school. She was married. She called me, and she goes, hey, you're a pastor, or you're in seminary? And I was like, yeah. She goes, all right, you're the next best thing I got to a pastor. Great. Well, how can I help you? She said, I think I married the wrong guy. What do I do? And my answer to her was, impossible. You know why I know it's impossible? Because God allowed you to marry him. That's how I know it's impossible. He would have never let you do it if it was the wrong guy. See, see when, when God ascends above our, our, our reasoning and our logic, then all of a sudden we can start to see like, okay, he would have prevented some things that he didn't want in our lives, even though they're painful and non-preferential beyond all our, our, our desires, it doesn't mean that he didn't want it for us. It just might mean that his desire for our life is different than what our desire for our life is. So all of a sudden, we have to come underneath the, the godship, the kingship of our God, and we no longer go, oh, you know what? I'm going to want something else, something different, just because this is hard. She would have never been married or been able to marry that person if God didn't choose her heritage for her. If God didn't want it, it wouldn't have happened. And then, therefore, it relieves us from wanting to rebel against God and running headlong into sin. See, if God re rescues us from worry and coveting, then we're also freed from the desire to rebel against our king. And you might go, well, how does that work? Why would we rebel against a king who first is higher above all gods, who knows the end from the, from the beginning, who promises that his words are the words of life and not death, again, fills us with his spirit as the counselor to navigate life's narrowest path? If he's done all this, why would we rebel? And the answer is very simple. We forget. 
we forget these beautiful truths. Because every year we need to be reminded of the ascension. Every week we need to be reminded of the cost. Why would we rebel against our king who has done all these things for us? We forget that, his, that ultimately we are to fear him. That's what it says in verse 2. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared. He is the only thing or person that he tells us to fear. Everything else we're not supposed to be afraid of. But not only that, and this is where it gets hard, we forget that his throne is holy. You see it in verse 8? You see, God reigns over the nations, and we like that. God sits on his holy throne, and we go, okay, I agree with that. Just spool out the implications of God sitting on a holy throne. His throne isn't just unique. It is set apart for everything that he does. Every decision he has made from beginning to end is in accordance perfectly with his will and his purposes. That's what holiness means. It's perfect, it's unique, and it's set apart for God. So his throne, when he sits on his throne, it is the seat from which he rules with absolute perfect knowledge and wisdom, and from which all of his decisions are spotless. Are y'all getting that? Everything in your life. Y'all, this is, this is rough. Everything in your life, good, bad, terrible, beautiful, comes from a spotless, perfect throne who reigns and rules over even the little nanoseconds of our lives. Everything. That's why, I, like, my windshield has a, has a crack going up it. And when it happened, I went, oh, come on. Because it was like winter time. You're not supposed to get cracks in your windshield in winter. That's a summer activity. But what I didn't do is curse God. How would you let this happen? Don't you know? Because underneath the reign and rule of God, he knew that I needed a windshield crack. I don't know why. Maybe I need to go minister to God that's going to repair it. Maybe he needs to hear the gospel. And I'm the guy to bring it to him. Could be. We'll see when I get it repaired. It ends all of this, right? And here's, I know this is hard. Because life doesn't always work out the way we want it to. But can we rest in the fact that it is what God wanted for us? Listen to this quote that I came across this week from a uh, commentator. I wonder if you believe this. He says, it is better for us to have a sorrowful lot of God's choosing than a joyful portion of of our own choosing. An affliction at God's hands is better than a joy of our own creation. Boy, that'll flip your world upside down. But it's in the Bible. Psalm 8410, doesn't it say better is one day in your courts? It's better to be a housekeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked? I'd rather be just a lowly servant in your house, O oh Lord, than to thrive away from you. Always having competing allegiances, but it ends our worry. The last thing that the ascension ends for us is apathy. Apathy. You say, well, why do you say apathy? Well, 
If God is supreme over every other power and authority, and he has chosen you to be a part of his family and perfectly and spotlessly orchestrates every nanosecond of your life's timeline, every millimeter of your appointed lot, every nuance of every relationship that you have had. If that's true, good, bad, or indifferent, what is your response? Psalmist seems to think that we should have a particular response. Did you catch it? If you didn't, I'm going to review it for us. Verse 1, clap your hands, all you people. I don't care if you're an introvert. Clap your hands. Shout to the God with loud sounds of joy. Verse 5, God has go, he's gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Are you seeing this? Sing praises. Look at verse 6, y'all. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Are you getting this theme? Are you getting it? I don't think you're getting it because you're quiet. Here's, here's what it looks like to worship, y'all, in our culture. This week, I spent a lot of time um, yelling at eight and nine-year-olds, and it turned out to be a lot of fun, all right? Now, this is my one free pass as a dad. First, I'm a dad before I'm a pastor, so I'm going to tell a dad story, okay? Brag on my kid, although I'm not going to say his name, but you might know who it is. All right, here we go. Wednesday night, we're in the championship game of baseball, right? Like bottom of extra innings, two outs, two on, second and third. My dude is up, okay? Strike one, doesn't happen. I'm on third base praying to the Lord this would not happen. Now, the Lord is sovereign over all, and he has my kid in this position. I'm like, oh, help me, Jesus. Literally went over to Chris at one point, who's my assistant coach. I was like, Lord, help us, help us. We can't do this. Help us, oh, Lord. So, bottom of the seventh or whatever, two outs, two on. My man Moses, oh, I said his name. Uh, my man Moses hits a ground ball. The, win, the tying run scores. The winning run scores. And you know what the crowd did? Exploded in praise. Because that's the appropriate response to victory. And I'm wondering, church, if we have an appropriate understanding of what we're supposed to do after a victory is secured on your behalf. The people in the stands didn't play the game. The boys did. But they felt it, and they re rejoiced, and they shouted. Did we all here last week when Chris was like, hey, guys, clap your hands a little bit. Like, it's all right to clap your hands. Hey, raise your hands a little bit. It's okay to raise your hands. How would you feel when she was doing that? Is it awkward? All the introverts in the house were like, mm, mm, no. You know why she did that? Because she sees something y'all can't see from here. I see things that y'all can't see from here. When a, when a truth bomb is dropped on us, we just go, mm. Shout! Give praise with instrument and with trumpet. That's what he's saying. Sing praises again and again. Sing praises to our king. Isn't he worthy of it? Making yourself a fool. Of course he is. You can do it at a baseball game. We can't do it in church. Are you kidding me right now? Yes, we're finally getting it. Let's go, white evangelicals. Let's talk back a little bit. This is where I miss Carol Barron. Y'all remember, remember Carol? She could sit in the back, but you knew she was here. We had one person that said amen, and then she moved to Conroe, and my heart sank. Come on. 
Why do we do this? This is the, the proper response to victory. And I pray that we would be a people would, that would erupt in gratitude. When we sing a, a response song, that we're just not like, oh, la, 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 where it is for lunch? I got to get my kid after this. That's going to be a nightmare. Blah, blah, blah. Where do I have my sticker? Yibby da. Come on, y'all. The victory has been secured on your behalf. He is worthy. Amen, Nick. He is worthy of making yourself a fool. You'll do it at a baseball game. I've seen it. I got it on video, y'all. People coming up to me, shaking my hand. Thank you, coach. I did nothing. Just sat there like a nervous wreck, just like all of y'all. May we give praise to our king for securing an eternal victory over death. You won't die. Though we may die, yet shall we live. Over sin, you don't have to sin. You used to have to sin, now you don't have to. What a victory. And over the devil, he wants to get in your throne. He wants to reign over your heart. He doesn't have the power to do it anymore. You've been set free from that grave. Let's pray. Our God and our King, may we respond, not just in this room, but in our lives, to the victory that you have secured. Perhaps this is why you say in your word, that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you tell us, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. Lord, our heart has a melody and a beat, and it is to your glory and your goodness and your worship. May our outside look like the inside, and if our inside is not in line, would you get it right? Help us respond, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.